Welcome to Crime Bar. Grab a drink and enjoy the show. Hello. Hello. Hi. I have been anxiously waiting for this moment <laughs> all week. It's only kept me up every night. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no exaggeration. Okay. So this is part two of the Cindy James episode. Mm -hmm. Last week, we left Cindy's private investigator, Ozzy, looking for Cindy in the park, but only finding her dog, Heidi, roaming the trails by herself. So after picking up Heidi, Ozzy started scouting around the surrounding neighborhoods, looking for any clues. And a few blocks away from the park, he finds a crowd of people surrounding an ambulance. And then he sees Cindy being loaded into the back of it. At the hospital, the medical staff noted that she was exhibiting signs of someone who was coming down from a significant amount of sedatives, and they later determined that she did have sedatives in her system, but how much was unclear, and how they found their way into her system was also unclear, so we don't know if they were injected or swallowed or something like that. They also noted a visible needle mark in the crook of her elbow. Nurses noted that they found pieces of dirt and twigs inside of Cindy's underwear, but her rape kit was not administered, and I don't know why. When Cindy came to, she told authorities that she and Heidi were just getting to her car to leave the park right on schedule when a green van pulled up next to her. She said the driver was a man with a beard, and there was a blonde woman in the passenger seat, but Cindy didn't see the woman's face very clearly. The man asked Cindy for directions, and the next thing she remembers is waking up in the hospital. Both police and Ozzy said it was evident that Cindy remembered more, but was holding back information for unknown reasons. They also acknowledged that Cindy was very drowsy and out of it during questioning. So I think one could argue they might have been misreading, you know, but okay. that's open to interpretation. The key difference with this attack compared to the others is that Cindy was loaded into an ambulance several blocks from the park and there was a crowd of witnesses. So Chances are there must be people out there who could provide more insight than she was. Because mm -hmm. with the other two, there was no one around. No one there She was house. completely alone. So the authorities circled back and they looked for clues in the park. And they also questioned the couple who had called for the ambulance. At the park, they found Cindy's broken sandals, a can of pepper spray that Ozzy had given her, and drag marks in the dirt near her car. The married couple who had called for the ambulance told the police that they had been inside their house when they heard banging at the front door. They came outside to find a disoriented Cindy pulling at her neck and attempting to communicate that she needed help. There was a black nylon stocking tied around her neck so tightly it took both the husband and wife to maneuver their fingers underneath to get it like the scissors yeah. in and cut it off. Oof. They called for an ambulance and that was pretty much the extent of what they knew. They didn't see any suspicious people or the green van or anything like that. While Cindy was recovering in the hospital from this attack... A hospital worker reported to her supervisor a really strange call that she received. She said a man with an accent, she guessed he was maybe from like New Zealand, but she wasn't sure, called and asked some odd questions. He wanted to know how many floors the hospital had, what security measures the hospital keeps in place, and when certain areas of the hospital closed. When she offered to transfer him to her supervisor, he hung up on her. So it's important to note that the only people from Cindy's life who knew she was in the hospital were her family members because police had alerted them. Cindy's ex-husband, Roy, was not alerted because he had long since been removed from Cindy's life. And he was also never officially ruled out as a suspect, so the cops wouldn't have told him either way. No, it was stupid. Stupid cops. Yeah, stupid. <laughs> that would be so stupid of them. 
<laughs> Just an armchair detective. <laughs> uh, the other thing about this, Cindy only stayed in the hospital for one night. So if that call was related to her, it had to have been someone who knew she had been sent to the hospital that very night. It's also important to note, Roy had a South African accent and the hospital worker stated that she wasn't very familiar with the accent that she heard over the phone and that the conversation didn't even last long enough for her to be able to pinpoint the origin. Mm -hmm. So Ozzy, the Cindy's PI, was convinced that the caller was Roy and he happened to have a recording of Roy speaking. So he sought out this hospital worker and asked her to listen to the tape. She insisted it was the same voice, same accent, same inflection, same everything. And this uh, is not a foolproof method no, Ozzy is using. Um, but she did hear both the call and the recording within a day or so of each other. So it's possible that it was still fresh in her mind. It's also possible that she got it totally wrong. There's just no way to know. It's like that's there's a reason people do a lineup instead of just showing one human. You can't you can't bait someone like that. Cindy told the doctors that she did have a prescription for a sleep aid, but she hadn't taken any in the last three days. And after hearing the amount that she was prescribed, the doctors felt confident it wasn't nearly enough to make her as disoriented as she had been. Mm -hmm. So in their minds, it wasn't logical that anyone could accuse her of taking all of her own prescribed meds and then wander around the park pretending to be attacked. Whereas the police, on the other hand, considered her sleep aid prescription as proof that she did this to herself. Literally, they just thought like, well, you there's a there's a doctor prescribed you something to help you sleep. And you are clearly coming down from sedatives. So this was you. This is it. Yeah. So I think the nicest way to put it is police were quite unimpressed with Cindy by this point. She is now almost three years into this nightmare and they are being really upfront about the fact that they just don't believe she actually has a stalker. They believed that she was more likely struggling with a personality disorder and that she was doing all of this to herself. They went so far as to speculate that maybe she had multiple personalities and perhaps one personality was trying to kill the other one. As I've mentioned already, Cindy was really struggling to live through this never-ending cycle of harassment, but the tipping point that pushed her further into a depression and really impacted her ability to function properly came from the blatant disbelief that the police expressed. They had spent three years tirelessly investigating every report, every inch of her home, and every person in her life. And not a single definitive clue was uncovered that would have pointed them in any one direction. So while it's understandable to us on the outside looking in that the police would reach this point of disbelief, it felt like the ultimate betrayal to Cindy. I can. Yeah, of course. She went home from the hospital fragile and defeated. And Ozzy suggested, why not agree to let the cops do a polygraph? This is the 1980s. Yeah. So... Everyone put more stock in polygraphs back then. And Cindy agrees to it. She insists that she has nothing to hide. But the test ends up showing that she was withholding information. So they marked her as having not passed the test. Of course, this feels like another huge blow to Cindy. So she does it two more times. Yeah. And she fails two more times. I think it's really sad because even the police not believing her, if she were to be insane, it would just reaffirm her own instability. And I can't even imagine like... Because there, there has to be elements of her personality that are completely sane. So yeah. seeing like your yeah. mind basically disintegrate yeah. would be frightening. So I mentioned um, in last week's episode, Cindy's relatives lived a minimum of three hours away from her. But after this attack, Cindy's parents and siblings all took turns coming to stay with her for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. 
First, her two sisters came to stay. One evening, they were all sitting together in the kitchen when they heard a loud bang against the side of the house. They jumped up and ran outside, and all three of them saw a person running away from the house as fast as possible. So they go back inside, and Cindy is really upset and says she's going to go take a bath to try to relax. Okay. After she went into the bathroom, her sister said almost immediately they heard the same banging sound on the outside of the house again. But by the time that they ran outside, there wasn't anybody there. Another day during this this period where her sisters were staying, all three of them were out of the house. And Ozzy, her PI, was coincidentally at her house by himself. And he actually picked up one of the threatening phone calls. After the sisters left, their mom, Matilda, came to stay with Cindy. And several things happened while she was there. Once in the middle of the night, someone repeatedly rang the doorbell, but was gone by the time they got to the door. Another night, they discovered someone had cut the phone lines. Another night, Cindy and Matilda were sitting together in the kitchen when someone threw a heavy object at the window, shattering it, but they didn't see anybody outside. Another night, Matilda woke up at 2 a.m. to someone banging on the side of the house. After Matilda's stay was over, Cindy's brother Doug came to stay with her. He reported that one time when he was alone, he heard the same loud banging on the side of the house, but by the time he ran outside, no one was there. Mm -hmm. After Doug left, Cindy's sister Melanie came back by herself. From my understanding, it's only now that Cindy's family is really getting involved. It sounds like she didn't really share much with them prior to this attack in the park, and they seem to only get involved because the police had told them while she was recovering in the hospital. So several family members, including Melanie, started asking lots of questions, trying to understand the timeline of this and try to understand all that has happened because it's three years in and they're just now realizing that like it's been consistently happening almost daily yeah. for three years. I mean, that's a long time to, to not realize to the extent of it. And through this, Melanie realized there was not a single family member who knew the entire story. Like one family member would know about the dead cats, but not about the attack on Cindy's dog, Heidi. Mm -hmm. And further, Melanie also realizes that Cindy is either intentionally or unintentionally withholding key pieces to the stories. For example, Cindy would tell two different family members about the same incident, but she would include or leave out significant details depending on who it was she was telling. Interesting. Okay. It seems as though the only people who knew of every incident and every attack were Cindy, the police, and Ozzy. So when Melanie started to ask more questions and try to get more clarification on certain things, Cindy would become so agitated and upset that Melanie would have to back off. So during this visit, Cindy was venting about how little she recalls from her attacks and how she knows that her lack of memory was contributing to the cops' skepticism. So Melanie was like, okay, then why not try hypnotherapy? That might help you remember because, you know, if Cindy can remember anything, then everyone wins. And again, in the 1980s, hypnosis was also a pretty big deal that people put more stock in than they do now, <laughs> just like the polygraph tests. So Cindy agrees to this, and she even allowed Ozzy to be in the room during her first hypnosis session. During it, she was able to recall more details from her attack in the park. She said the man in the driver's seat of the green van had gotten out and dragged her into the back. A third person was in the back of the van wearing a wig and a mask. She recalled struggling as hard as she could, but all three individuals held her down and then one of them injected something into her arm. As she was losing consciousness, 
she remembered the person who had been hiding in the back said a term in Zulu that she said roughly translated to, be warned, do as I say. However, Cindy didn't speak Zulu. She said she knew the term because her ex-husband, Roy, who had grown up in South Africa, said this term fairly often throughout their marriage. But according to the Audible podcast, Death by Unknown Event, where I got all of this information, what Cindy repeated is not a real term in Zulu. That doesn't mean that she didn't hear the person speak Zulu, and it doesn't mean that she didn't recognize the term as something that her former husband used to say. But regardless, Cindy very much admitted that during her marriage, her husband would tell her, be warned, do as I say. Incredibly threatening messages. Is that terrible? Like, I would laugh in Brett's face. Like, I know, you would punch be his warn- face. Be warned, do as I say. I would just laugh. You're like, bitch. <laughs> you lost your mind. You, you're you crazy. Do, you do as I say. So anyways, it's not clear how Cindy wound up outside of the van and conscious enough to get to a nearby house and bang on the door for help. So that's that's all we know about the attack in the park. After Cindy's relatives spent months taking turns staying with her, she got used to the comfort of other people sleeping under the same roof. So she started flip-flopping between sleeping at friends' houses and having friends stay over at her house so that she wouldn't have to be alone anymore. I would also feel like I would mentally need confirmation that I am hearing and experiencing all of these things of and course. having another pair of eyes on it. Totally. Yep. It like, makes all the world, world yep. a difference. I agree. So I haven't um, touched on this yet, but not very long after this whole stalking nightmare began, Cindy started going to a psychiatrist named Dr. Alan Connolly. Dr. Connolly treated Cindy for the first few years of this nightmare, and he said that he believed that she had a real stalker. But as time went on, his focus and concern became more and more about Cindy's mental deterioration. Deterioration. Yeah. He believed that was largely due to the police not believing her anymore. Of course. He felt that people openly doubting her claims slowly drove her crazy. And by the summer of 1985, he was very concerned for her well-being. She was no longer eating, and those around her, Dr. Connolly included, were very worried that she might commit suicide. Cindy's work had been a refuge for a long time, but she's now so deep into this web of harassment that she can't compartmentalize anymore. She was always agitated and jumpy. Her focus wasn't what it used to be. And that's a really big deal. I mean, she's doing incredible work helping young children, but she can't do her job if she's constantly looking over her shoulder or or jumping out of her chair at the drop of a hat. Or even questioning her own sanity. Of course. You know, that yourself would drive you crazy. That, That alone, yeah. And in her work evaluations, several of her colleagues expressed serious concern for her well-being. Yet no matter how often Cindy was encouraged to take some time off, she refused. So her colleagues end up rallying together and they force her to take some vacation time. A few weeks later, in June of 1985, Cindy attempted suicide. She swallowed a large amount of pills, but promptly vomited and called Dr. Connolly. They decided together that she needed to check herself into a psychiatric ward. So Cindy did it, and she checked in under a fake name because she didn't want anyone in her field to know where she was and especially didn't want her ex-husband to know where she was. But 24 hours into her stay, Cindy wanted out. The doctors all noted that she seemed to be experiencing severe depression and stress, and that because she had attempted suicide, they couldn't just let her walk out. For six days, she flip-flopped between arguing with the doctors, begging to leave, giving the silent treatment, 
And one time when she saw the opportunity, she ran out the front door. Oh my God. Can you hear that helicopter? I was like trying to talk louder, but I think I just need to say that part again. Flip flopping. <laughs> she was flip flopping. She was mad. She was mad. Angry. mad. <laughs> Big time. <laughs> and I start coughing. <laughs> That's actually funny. Okay. Sorry, everybody. So we we record this in a uh, not soundproof garage. <laughs> So sometimes we hear neighbors' dogs barking or someone hogging a horn or a noisy helicopter circling above the house. So I'm going to say all of that again. For six days, she flip-flopped between arguing with the doctors, begging to leave, giving the silent treatment, and one time when she saw the opportunity, she ran out the front door and the staff caught her just before she ran into traffic. On the sixth day... Cindy's brother, Doug, showed up to the hospital. She had called and begged him to advocate for her, and so the doctors agreed to release Cindy under Doug's care. He promised that she would come stay with him at his house, he would be there for her in whatever way that she needed, and that he would make sure her care was a top priority. So she was released. But Cindy and Doug had concocted that whole story, so once they left the psychiatric ward, Doug went to his home, and Cindy went back to her house by herself, And as soon as her forced vacation time was up, she went right back to work. A few days after getting home from the psych ward, Cindy received another heavy breathing call. The phone company was still tracing all of her calls. And by this time, Cindy had started to record all of her calls and voicemails. So anytime she would receive a threatening call, the phone company would attempt to trace it, but they almost always weren't long enough to accurately pinpoint the caller's location. However, This call was long enough. Not only did the phone company trace it to a specific area, but they even managed to pinpoint the exact address that the call originated from. The call was made from Cindy's own home. Oh, no, no. Oh. The fact that the call originated from her own house was not necessarily cause for concern, but it also didn't prove anything. The police chalked it up to being a mistake because Cindy was visibly distraught and confused and fresh out of the psych ward and, you know, like a week or two after attempting suicide. She was extremely fragile. So they were just like, yeah, you're confused. How about you go lay down and rest kind of thing? Okay. The following day, Cindy received a package in the mail. Inside was a book titled, You Can Heal Your Life. And there was a black nylon stocking used as a bookmarker. On the page that it marked, someone had highlighted three words, blood flowing freely. A few days later, she received another package in the mail. This one had a brand new cosmetic case in it, and inside the case, she found rancid meat. Police sent it away for testing, but the lab could not determine what it was. They guessed that it may have been an organ from a small animal. After this, police are just fed up yeah they put undercover 24 7 surveillance on both cindy and roy because they still believe he may be involved somehow however they did not witness either person doing anything suspicious then one day while unbeknownst to her police are tailing her every move cindy reports finding a small fire in her bathroom a female officer named carol ann halliday responded to this call and she said that she knew immediately something about this wasn't right The scene wasn't right. Cindy wasn't right. 
And she wasn't familiar with Cindy or her case. So she was walking into this scenario with fresh eyes. Mm -hmm. It's important to, to know that. The first thing she notes is Ozzy, Cindy's PI. He was already at the house when police arrived and he was actively trying to repair what looked to be severed phone lines. Officer Halliday was floored because as a PI, Ozzy knew better than to touch anything at a potential crime scene, especially before the police have even arrived. Mm -hmm. But Halliday also knew of Ozzy in a professional capacity, and she didn't believe that he was intentionally tampering with evidence, but instead she took it as confirmation that he was just living up to his reputation as an incompetent clown. Yeah, that's right. When it came time to inspect the scene, that was where the questions really started piling up. So Cindy tells the police that she was inside her house when she realized there was a fire in the bathroom. She ran to the phone, but the lines had been cut. She contacted Ozzy over the two-way radio he had given her, and he called the fire department and then arrived at her home just before authorities did. Cindy was certain that her bathroom window had been securely shut, so she assumed someone had walked up opened it, and then threw a flammable object inside. However, Halliday noted that the window was actually open, leaving an opening of about six inches. She also went outside and stood on the sidewalk and looked towards the bathroom window, and she realizes Cindy is flat out lying. Between the sidewalk and the bathroom window, there was about six to eight feet of grass, and the grass was about a foot tall. You couldn't approach the bathroom window without walking through this patch, yet there wasn't a single area that was bent or broken or showing signs of anyone having been anywhere near it, mm -hmm. much less walk across it. Halliday walked across the grass and found that it completely flattens and breaks with each step. She also notices that after getting up close to the window, there was a very fine layer of dust coating the entire outside of the window, and it was completely untouched. Uh -huh. No smudges, no fingerprints, no evidence of anyone touching it from the outside. This means that if Cindy Stalker had in fact done this, he would have had to stand six to eight feet from the window during daylight hours, no less, and thrown a flammable object across the grass and directly through a six inch opening without disturbing any of the dust on the outside. Halliday said, looking at the scene, it seemed next to impossible that this fire was set from someone standing outside of the house. Yeah, unless they're like a first string quarterback. Unless it's Kobe. Yes. <laughs> I love I said quarterback, you said Kobe. <laughs> Sports. Sports, yeah. That was great. <laughs> they were stupid. I'm not. Oh, oh. sorry. Oh. <laughs> well, I am. I'll just... <laughs> We are stupid. Well, <laughs> I am. <laughs> I, I really turned that around really quick on you. Yeah, sorry. Whew, anyways. Halliday immediately told Cindy what she believed was really happening. You know, that Cindy was lying and had set the fire herself from inside the house. And Cindy stared at the officer expressionless. She didn't confirm or deny. She didn't cry or argue. She just stared at her blankly. What I was most curious about is the fact that there was supposedly 24-7 surveillance on Cindy's home at this time. So if there are cops outside, they wouldn't have missed this person on the sidewalk because the bathroom window was in clear view of the street. So if they didn't see anyone, then it further confirms the theory that the fire was set from the inside and most likely by Cindy herself. Yes. But this is an example of what I've been saying where it's like every time you think you figured out the truth, the next detail contradicts that. It turns out Cindy's case file 
and Officer Halliday's notes from this visit make no mention of any police being staked out on this day. Despite the order of 24-7 surveillance still being in place, there were no police officers outside of her house. Why? We don't know. Okay. Helpful. Yeah. It, it's just like... It's don't just, say you have 24-hour surveillance if you don't. If you don't. And so then it, it just makes you wonder, like... Did she do this herself? She didn't know that anyone was staked out anyways and so she got lucky? Or does she have a real stalker who's either so intelligent that they they know when they're being watched and when they aren't and they took yeah. advantage of the cops not being there that day? Or was the stalker, did he get lucky because they just happened to not be there that day? Also, why? Right. Also, and it's can just you like trust why even anything that the cops are saying then too. Yeah. If there's going to be all these exactly all these cops that dispute this and, yeah. and and cast doubt on everything that she's saying, but then it's like your records don't even show that they were out. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, I'm just. Up. I'm so. I, you know I walk I'm, away. I'm, done I'm with fed this. up with this <laughs> with this story. Can you imagine being her? No, oh. I can't. <laughs> no, I mean that's what makes it feel like you're just in a washing machine, nuts. just spinning around, like you just don't know. So this fire was in August of 1985. It was only a couple of weeks after Cindy's brother, Doug, had helped her check out of the psych ward. Cindy was determined to keep working, to be strong and brave and not let the stalker take any more from her. So she continued seeing her psychiatrist and she continued working, but she was still terrified and fragile. I mean, her colleagues literally described her as brittle. So she was essentially just powering through, but like barely hanging on. Ozzy had suggested, why not try hypnosis again? It worked the last time. She had supposedly recalled memories of her attack in the park. So maybe they could try again and see if she remembers more from, from other times in her life that she doesn't really remember. Yeah. And the next hypnosis session was wild and intense. Ozzy was present for this session, as well as a couple of police officers who had been working on her case. While Cindy was under, she became visibly upset as she recalled a memory from 1981, the year before she and Roy had split up. So Roy loved sailing. Um, being on the water was his happy place. But for Cindy, being out on the boat was actually very traumatizing. She got seasick very easily, but her distaste was mostly from a time in her childhood where, as a way to teach her how to swim, Cindy's dad had thrown her overboard and just watched her flail. So in this hypnosis session, Cindy recalled a boating trip that she and Roy went on in July of 1981. She remembered they stayed in an A-frame cabin on the water that was owned by a former colleague of Roy's. Each day they went out fishing. On July 23rd, Cindy remembered becoming especially sick on the boat, so Roy gave her some medicine to combat it. But it made her so drowsy that she ended up falling asleep. And when she woke up, it was almost dusk, and she realizes that she had slept the entire day. And their boat was docked at a log cabin in a quiet cove, and Roy was nowhere to be found. So she sat there waiting for him to return, and after a while, she realizes that she's hearing, like, some muffled yelling. She thought maybe it was Roy calling for her, so she got up and followed the sounds, which turned out to be coming from inside the cabin that they were docked at. The closer she got, she realized it was someone yelling for help. She stepped onto the porch. She was afraid, but worried it was Roy who needed help. So she gently knocked, but no one seemed to hear it. She opened the front door and then froze in fear. Cindy sees a young man and a young woman laying next to each other on the ground, covered in blood. The woman was in her late 20s. She was in a white blouse and a brown skirt. She was of average build, barefoot, 
laying on her side and her legs were open. The man was in his 30s with brown hair. He was only wearing dark blue shorts, which might have been boxers. Roy was standing above them, holding a knife five or six inches long, in the midst of dismembering their bodies. When Cindy opened the door, she said that Roy stood up straight and looked at her with pure fear and rage in his face and said, what the hell are you doing here? Cindy turned and vomited over the side of the porch railing. She stood up and looked back to see that Roy was walking towards her. He's covered in blood. He looks monstrous. And he smears blood and fluid from the bodies across Cindy's face and all throughout her hair. And then he calmly whispers, if you tell anyone, I'll do the same thing to your mother and both of your sisters. All she can recall after this was Roy getting her back on the boat. Then they sailed back to their rented A-Frey cabin. She remembered at some point during the ride, Roy disposed of both bodies over the side of the boat. Cindy's demeanor in this hypnosis session was extremely emotional. She was sobbing throughout and the hypnotist had to work really hard to keep her talking. But at one point, Cindy suddenly freezes and whispers, it's not safe to remember. Everyone in the room, the police included, wholeheartedly believed that this was a real memory that she was uncovering. They didn't question if she was being honest or anything like that. They said it was it was it that felt real. Very real. Yeah. But that doesn't really mean much without any physical evidence to back it up. But the police present found it compelling enough that Cindy ends up joining them on a boat for several days looking for this cove with a log cabin. Cindy could recall the cove and the property, the cabin, the landscaping in very clear detail. Like really, really, Mm -hmm. really clear. She could really remember it. But she had zero clue where it was. Given that she had slept all day and woke up docked at this cabin at dusk, there's no telling how far away they had sailed from their A-frame. And during the ride back to the A-frame that night, it was dark and Cindy admitted that she really couldn't remember the details because she was terrified and in shock and that sort of thing. Even with several police boats dispatched to search a really, really wide area, they never found the log cabin. And police told her that without any physical evidence, they couldn't charge Roy with anything. Cindy completely broke down hearing this. So as a last ditch effort, they arranged to have Cindy make a recorded phone call to Roy, telling him that she remembers everything and that she's planning to go to the police. And I actually have um, an audio clip of that phone call that I'm going to play right now. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> I'm excited. Hello, Roy. Oh, it's Cindy calling. Roy, you must know that this cannot go on indefinitely. Are you attributing that to me? Are you denying it? I am certainly denying it. I always have denied it. I have never done anything. I've okay. always denied it. And that's regards to the stalking or the the dumping of the bodies? Well, he's denying being involved in her harassment. And he claimed to have no idea what she was referencing when she told him that she remembered everything from their sailing trip. So that's just a little clip of this phone call that was recorded where they're just going back and forth. She's like, I know what we did. I know what you did. I remember everything. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And she's like, are you still denying like being involved? And he's like, I've always denied being involved because I'm okay. not involved, you know. And finally, he gets so fed up with his back and forth that he tells her that if she's going to continue accusing him of having done anything illegal, 
she can just communicate with his lawyer going forward. Only four months after her suicide attempt in December of 1985, Cindy is found semi-conscious in a ditch off the side of the road six miles from her home. She was in thigh-high icy water. She was wearing jeans, a sweater, an oversized men's work coat, and a singular work glove, and she was also wearing a singular men's work boot with her other foot completely bare. She had cuts and bruises all over her body. She had hypothermia. And of course, a black nylon stocking tied so tightly around her neck that paramedics couldn't even get their fingers underneath it. In the hospital, almost identical to the past attacks, doctors noted that she seemed to be heavily sedated. She said that she couldn't remember what happened to her. All she can recall is running a quick errand on her lunch break, and then she woke up in a hospital bed. Officer Carol Ann Halliday, the woman who had responded to the call about the fire in the bathroom, also responded to this call. She said speaking to Cindy after this attack didn't convince her that Cindy was innocent. If anything, it was further confirmation that Cindy was lying. Officer Halliday said that Cindy was engaging and responsive during questioning until Halliday started poking holes in her story. Suddenly, Cindy would become very loopy as if she were still coming down from her sedatives. Or she would become very emotional like, oh, I just can't believe this. I just can't go on. I can't do this anymore. So Halliday would back off and ask, irrelevant questions like what did you do around noon last Tuesday and then Cindy would go from playing at being groggy or emotional to suddenly normal and answering those questions no problem Mm -hmm. Halliday is determined to close this case one way or another so she asks Cindy would you mind if I went to your house and looked around and Cindy's like yeah no problem at all I have nothing to hide and she gives Halliday a key and the alarm code to disarm her new security system Cindy stayed in the hospital for several days recovering from hypothermia, and that same night after giving Halliday access to her home, the nurses stated that Cindy woke up around midnight screaming from a night terror. She kept repeating, I should have been more careful. I should have been more careful. But she was in a sort of trance-like state, and nurses couldn't get her to calm down or tell them what it was she was referencing. A few days later, after doing a thorough sweep through Cindy's house and coming up empty-handed, Halliday asked Cindy if she were willing to undergo a psych evaluation by a forensic psychiatrist, and Cindy refused. Halliday obviously took this as further confirmation that Cindy was lying, but Cindy insisted that the reason she said no is because the forensic psychiatrist in question was someone that she knew both personally and professionally, so it was a conflict of interest. However, it seemed to really irk Cindy how quick Halliday was to question her integrity. So eventually, Cindy agrees to be evaluated despite the conflict of interest. After spending only one hour with her, this psychiatrist came to what he believed was a very concrete explanation. He concluded that Cindy staged all of the harassment and that she was more than willing to harm herself if it meant creating a more convincing story. He also stated that she had a serious mental disorder that stemmed from a sexual assault by her brother, Doug, when they were teenagers. So I really want to drive this point home. This is a longtime colleague of Roy's, who Roy and Cindy invited to their home for dinners and social events several times over the years. And this psychiatrist was arranged by Officer Halliday in an attempt to prove that Cindy was lying. So it's just very important to keep those facts handy when you're hearing his supposed, like, conclusions. Yeah. So for the police, 
this conclusion was like, okay, case closed. And for Cindy, this felt like, you know, this gave the police, the very people meant to protect her, uh, you know, a reason to now write her off as mentally unstable. And she feared that for her stalker, this was a green light to keep going because it meant the police weren't going to be involved. Yeah. Within days of this evaluation, Cindy fires Ozzy. Her true reasoning for this is a bit unclear. She may have realized that she had spent $40,000 on a PI whose presence and security measures did literally nothing to deter (laughs) her stalker. Or maybe she finally realized that he was as incompetent as everyone else seemed to believe that he was. Or the most salacious possibility, maybe Cindy was doing all of this to herself and she feared that the truth was on the verge of being revealed. So she thinned out her inner circle to try to protect her lie. By April of 1986, Cindy's friend Agnes and her husband Tom regularly slept over in Cindy's guest room. Their home was always open to Cindy too, and they often flip-flopped between staying at each other's houses. One night, it was Agnes and Tom's turn to sleep at Cindy's. They were all sitting together in the living room when Cindy's new alarm system went off. Someone had thrown a heavy object at the back door, shattering all of the glass in it. Police investigated this thoroughly since they had two witnesses who claimed Cindy was inside of the home with them when it happened. Therefore, she couldn't have been the culprit. They even brought canine units to her home, but there was zero trace of anyone other than Cindy, Agnes, and Tom being there. Not long after this, Tom and Agnes stayed over another night. Around 2.30 a.m., Cindy burst into the guest room and shook Tom awake. She said that she heard a loud noise and he was like, yeah, I heard it too. It was like a really loud thump. So they all get up and they go investigate and they find Cindy's basement is completely on fire. Agnes tried to call 911, but the phone lines had been cut. So Tom runs outside to go to a neighbor's and he sees a man standing on the sidewalk staring at Cindy's house. Tom asks the man if he can call the fire department And the guy promptly turned on his heel and ran away into the dark as fast as possible. So Tom gets to a neighbor and calls the fire department. And he's like, I don't know what that was about. For both police and firefighters, Cindy's story did not match the scene that they were looking at. Cindy suggested perhaps she had left a cigarette burning in the basement by mistake. Mm -hmm. But the fire department ruled that out very quickly. They said that a cigarette would cause a slow burn, but whatever had caused this fire was highly flammable and fast to spread. So Cindy was like, oh, well then someone must have snuck in through a window or something. But the only window that would have been large enough for anyone to fit through was found to be securely locked. And there was a fine layer of dust on the outside and inside that was completely undisturbed. However, That window's glass had shattered during the fire and the glass landed on the outside of the house, not the inside. So if someone had perhaps thrown a flammable object through the closed window, it would have caused the broken glass to land inside of the house. But because the glass was found outside, it showed that the heat from the fire caused the glass to break, therefore sending it outwards. The other thing to note about this is when they first discovered the fire, Tom attempted to enter the basement through a door in the side yard, but it was bolted shut from the inside. And then later after the fire was put out, the fire department confirmed the interior locks to that door were all securely in place. When the fire department ruled out arson and suggested that someone from within the home set the fire, the cops took on this gross, you know, see, we know you're lying to us kind of attitude towards Cindy. 
And it's not even that they were trying to pretend that they didn't believe her. They didn't. But, but their their smirks, yeah. you know, did not go unnoticed. And it didn't help that during the interview with authorities, Cindy changed her story entirely multiple times. So after the bathroom fire and the basement fire, Cindy filed insurance claims both times. And both times, her insurance company conducted their own independent investigation and they ruled out arson both times, therefore granting her several thousand dollars for each claim. Cindy lost so many prized possessions from this fire in the basement. She had been storing boxes and boxes of, of sentimental items, family photos, letters, everything like that from her entire life. Mm-hmm. Irreplaceable items that Cindy and Cindy alone cherished. This was a devastating loss and those who knew her said the pain was unbearable. Cindy spiraled even further into a dark depression. She was worse than her friends, family, and colleagues had ever seen. She smoked two packs a day. She dropped 20 pounds off of her already skeletal frame. She refused to get out of bed, and eventually she refused food and water. And then she told her family that she had begun to realize suicide was really her only ticket out of this nightmare. She had lost all faith that anyone was capable of catching her tormentor, and she told her friend Agnes that her stalker didn't want to actually kill her, but rather he wanted to slowly scare her to death. How, why doesn't she just move? She's moved several times already. Okay, cut that out then. Her family was worried sick and took her threats of suicide seriously, so they encouraged her to check herself into a psychiatric ward again. Cindy's brother, Doug, the one who had conspired to help get her out the first time she checked herself in, he was now threatening to have her involuntarily committed if she didn't prioritize her mental health. And the mere suggestion made Cindy irate and she demanded Doug get out of her house and she even called the cops on him. Doug left, but the rest of her family wouldn't back down. Cindy compromised and agreed to stay with Tom and Agnes for a while who wholeheartedly believed that she was an innocent victim. So they moved her and Heidi into their home where they could keep a closer eye on her and try to keep her safe and maybe try to lift her spirits. Mm -hmm. But it didn't seem to work. Cindy was depressed as ever, and her suicidal ideation didn't subside. Cindy's work finally took extreme measures and forced her to take a six-month leave of absence to focus on getting proper care. But learning this was a breaking point, and Cindy's loved ones had her involuntarily committed in May of 1986, only one month after the basement fire. She refused to eat and drink. She ignored every doctor's attempt to engage with her. She refused to make eye contact. They had to keep her restrained at all times because the moment she saw an opportunity, she would bolt out the door. She chain-smoked all day long. Finally, after several days with no food, nurses threatened to insert a feeding tube down her throat. So she relented, and she started drinking tea and accepting small bowls of soup. She eventually started cooperating with her evaluations and accepting the medications offered to her. The doctors treating her assessed that Cindy had an above-average intelligence and passive-aggressive tendencies. She had over-the-top stress levels and almost crippling anxiety. The thing that was most intriguing were her answers to the Rorschach test. That's the test where you look at images of ink blots of varying shapes and colors, and you report what scenes you see in the ink. Your answers provide insight into thought patterns, which helps determine possible personality, emotional, or intellectual disorders. The doctors noted that Cindy saw images that people very rarely see. 
In every ink blot, Cindy describes seeing terrifying scenes of blood, violence, or anger. She saw firefighters spraying blood on a burning home. They said that the word deviant was the best way to describe all the things that she saw. The doctors treating her said that whether or not her stalker was real, there was no denying that she was experiencing extreme fear and stress in her day-to-day life. And the images she saw in the ink plots felt like depictions of the harassment that she had endured. She was also familiar enough with the test that she showed major insecurity with each image. She would describe what she was seeing and then she would break down crying and ask, are my answers saying I'm crazy? Am I going crazy? And she confided that she had started to genuinely wonder, am I crazy? I mean, think about that for a minute. Knowing all that she's been through in the last four years, and especially in the last few months when she was at an all-time low, incapable of functioning properly in almost all capacities, and people around you, the police in particular, are telling you no, You actually have more than one personality and unbeknownst to your main personality, there's another one in there who is trying desperately to torture and kill you. And then your family is so fearful of your mental state that they commit you against your will. And even you can't deny the frustration that in all these years, there's never been even once that the police found physical evidence that another person has ever come near you or your home or been present during any of your attacks. So I think it's totally logical that she's honestly wondering, of course. is this real or is this in my head? I'm sitting here going absolutely insane. I'm getting a d- condensed version of this right. while I'm experiencing it. I know. So the doctors evaluating her were simply fascinated with her case. She was their colleague, essentially. Cindy was the head psychiatric nurse at a highly respected center for children with severe behavioral problems. But if there is truth to this idea that she may have multiple personalities, then how on earth did she make it as far as she did in this career path? So just from from the doctors, like from a colleague's perspective, they're like, what the hell? Like, this is so fascinating. Well, because even people with multiple personality disorder can have different IQs. Sure. So yeah. that's, that in itself is interesting. Totally. Someone qualified and someone didn't. Yeah. After a few weeks of being on antipsychotics and antidepressants, Cindy seemed to improve a bit. Once doctors determined that she was not a threat to herself, she was moved to a less secure wing of the ward where she experienced more of a normal stay, like no restraints or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And it was here that she first met a guy named Dr. Friesen. He didn't know Cindy or Roy in either a professional or personal capacity, so he was truly impartial. He was made aware of the history of harassment and that the police didn't believe she had a real stalker. But he said, ultimately, he didn't really concern himself with trying to prove if her stalker was real or just in her mind. He said his job is to help patients get better, and the patient in front of him desperately needed to get better. Cindy was frail. She was 5'2 and weighed less than 100 pounds. She exhibited palpable fear, even in the safety of her own room. She would hide in closets. She was extremely jumpy and agitated. And she told Dr. Friesen that her stalker was highly intelligent and more than capable of outsmarting the police forever. Over the course of a few weeks, Dr. Friesen learned that Cindy was struggling with several childhood traumas that she had buried deep and never really dealt with. She told him about being sexually assaulted as a teenager. She told him that she had a deep and powerful fear of her father, who she described as being a very strict military-like disciplinarian. During her childhood, her dad drank to excess. 
He inflicted corporal punishments on all of his kids. Her parents had regular explosive arguments. She and her siblings received brutal leather belt spankings. Other times, their punishment would be to sit at the bottom of the basement stairs in total darkness by themselves for hours on end with no food or water. Other times, the child being disciplined would be forced to eat their dinner by themselves in the dark at the base of the stairs while the rest of the family sat at the kitchen table on the floor above them. She also explained that her ex, Roy, was very similar to her father, but that she was blind to that for the first 15 years of their 16-year marriage. She said Roy was one person when the door was open, but as soon as they were behind closed doors, a monster emerged. She repeatedly stated that she hated Roy with a passion and that he had destroyed everything that mattered to her since she had left him, just like he promised he would. Roy had told her that she would never survive on her own, and she believes that he went out of his way to make sure that that came true. She also felt that the police automatically respected Roy because of his position as a doctor, and then turned their back on the victim and blamed her for all that she was going through. Cindy confessed to Dr. Friesen that she knew for certain that Roy was her stalker. And after years of outsmarting the police, she'd finally reached the conclusion that suicide was her only option to escape Roy once and for all. And this was her first time admitting because I remember previously she said that she kind of alluded and then other people claimed she alluded and then she, she pointedly said, I don't believe he's involved. So mm-hmm. this is the first time she's saying, I actually know for a fact it's that him. it's him. Yeah. And maybe she felt safe doing so now that she was in a psychiatric hospital. You Possibly. Know? Yeah. But after about a month of being on medications and regular sessions with Dr. Friesen, Cindy started showing huge signs of improvement. So much so that they changed her status at the hospital from involuntary to voluntary, giving her the option to leave at any time. And she promptly checked herself out. God, if I were her, I'd be staying there forever. (laughs) Well, but an hour later, she was back. She voluntarily checked herself in and said that she was committed to getting better. She was determined to wash her hands of Roy once and for all and remove any remaining power that he had over her. In July of 1986, after a total of 10 weeks in a psychiatric ward, it was time for her to go home and take charge of her life. Cindy left the hospital revived. She was determined to make major changes in her life and put an end to this nightmare. She told her friends and family that she had, in fact, been withholding information all this time. She told them that she knew who the perpetrator was and that if the police didn't handle this, then she would. She said when it's all over that she would explain everything and that it would all make sense then. So you remember just before her family had her committed, her job had forced a six-month leave of absence? Yes. So what Cindy didn't know until she was released from the hospital was that she had actually lost her job entirely. Everyone in her life knew what a devastating blow this would be, so they all agreed to keep the news from her until she was well enough to leave the hospital. And they were right. Losing her job was simply a devastation. It was, she was so devastated. Her pride and passion came from helping children in need. And she had spent 10 years as director of this center that did incredible work. Her colleague said there are so many children out there who grew up to live healthy lives as a direct result from Cindy's influence. So this was a loss to all, to the center, to her colleagues, but most importantly to Cindy. But that's life sometimes, and Cindy was willing to roll with the punches. She wanted to take her life back, so she had her car repainted a new color. 
she legally changed her name from her married name, Cindy Makepeace, to Cindy James. And it's not clear where the name James comes from, but I think she was just aiming for whatever anonymity she could get. Mm -hmm. Um, And then she finalized her divorce from Roy. She moved to a town called Richmond, which is a, a suburb of Vancouver. She got a new nursing job at Richmond General Hospital. She filed a complaint against the Children's Center and was awarded severance pay. She made new friends in Richmond. She wasted no time getting to work on her new garden. And she continued meeting with Dr. Friesen twice a week. And she even tried dating, but that didn't pan out very well. She wrote in her diary that she worried something was defective in her, something that caused men to change when they were around her because her dad wasn't great, Roy wasn't great, Pat McBride wasn't great. But aside from the romance department, she seemed to be making real progress building a new life. And the cherry on top, the harassing calls and letters stopped. After four years, they just stopped completely. In Cindy's new home, she had a very high-tech alarm system installed. She had privacy hedges planted around the perimeter of her property, and she did her best to live as normal a life as she could, which was really hard to do. And she still did stuff like she wouldn't leave her dog Heidi alone. If she couldn't bring Heidi with her somewhere, she had someone watch her. She also became really good friends with her new neighbor, Tammy, who just so happened to work in the payroll department at Richmond General Hospital, which is the the place that Cindy just started working at. Tammy remembered she and several neighbors noticed how often Cindy's alarm system was triggered. It was incredibly loud and it would go off all hours of the day and night, whether Cindy was home or out. Mm -hmm. Finally, after enough complaints, Cindy confided that she had a stalker. She explained all of it to Tammy, but said, you know, things are getting better now. I think it's kind of over and I'm just trying to move on with my life. So she was just trying to say, like, I'm sorry about the alarm, but I have to keep it set. And Tammy and her husband really took pity on her. They became like Cindy's own personal neighborhood watch. (laughs) Tammy said that looking out the window to check on Cindy's house became part of her and her husband's daily routine. So sweet. That'd be you and Brett. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It really would be. Tammy would get up in the morning, stand in the shower on her tippy toes, and she could see directly into Cindy's backyard. After determining all looked well, she would go about her morning. Anytime they came and went, they would peek at Cindy's front yard to make sure all looked good. And then at night, Tammy would get on her tippy toes again and look out the window to confirm all was quiet in Cindy's yard, and then she would go to bed. Tammy's husband would sleep with the lacrosse bat under his side of the bed, and whenever Cindy's alarm system was triggered in the middle of the night, he would jump up and race next door to help. Her neighbors even convinced her to cut down all the privacy hedges so that they could see into her yard better. And initially, Cindy didn't want to because she didn't want to feel like exposed, but then agreed that like, yeah, it probably would be better for her neighbors to keep help keep her safe, that kind of thing. Tammy admitted that initially she was part of a group of several neighbors who took pity on Cindy and tried to protect her. But as time went on, all the others sort of fell away after questioning if this was even real. Many of them wondered if Cindy was staging these alarm triggers as a way to feel less alone because every time it went off, a group of people came running to her aid. It didn't help that when Tammy learned an acquaintance of hers was actually Cindy's cousin and after she made that connection with him, he was like, oh, Cindy's kooky, but she's always been like this. She just does it to get attention. So Tammy and her husband didn't really know what to believe, but they stuck by her side, if only out of pity, you know, for the next two years, Cindy's life seemed almost normal. She didn't really like her new job. 
Uh, she wrote in her diary that after each shift, it felt like she had just spent 12 hours cleaning up adult diapers or helping patients on and off a bedpan. She really missed working with kids. And she found it especially triggering when women were admitted to the hospital after domestic disputes. That was really hard for her to, to handle. But there were still positives in her life worth focusing on. The notes and calls weren't happening anymore. She firmly believed that her new high-tech alarm system was deterring any physical attacks on her and Heidi. And her alarm was triggered pretty often, but there were no attacks. So that's, that's a big deal. She reported once to police that she saw a man she didn't know sprint through her yard, but there was no sign of vandalism and nothing ever came of it. And then the alarm triggers started happening more frequently until it was an almost daily occurrence. Sometimes there was no clear indication as to what set it off. Other times it was a rock or a brick thrown through a window or a kicked in door. Sometimes it happened when Cindy was there. Other times she wasn't there. Tammy, the neighbor, remembered an odd thing about all the broken windows. She said after each time they'd be standing there inspecting the damage and she would say something like, you know, it's odd that this window is the one that they broke. You'd think if you were trying to like send a message or break in, you'd go for that one over there. And Cindy would be like, "Mm, yeah, maybe, I don't know. And then the next time they found a broken window, it would be the one that Tammy had pointed to as the better choice. Around this same time, Dr. Friesen started getting anonymous phone calls from someone who was attempting to conceal their voice. The caller told him things about Cindy like that she was moonlighting as a sex worker and wasn't the person that she claimed to be. Dr. Friesen didn't put any stock in these claims and he got the impression that someone was trying to discredit Cindy in the eyes of her own psychiatrist. And I don't think that Cindy was aware of these calls. I I don't think it would have been ethical for him to have told her about them. Mm -hmm. But what we know for certain is that this was about the same time that Cindy started having anxiety attacks and nightmares. And I'm just assuming because of the increase of of the vandalism. Cindy was doing everything in her power to be brave and she did her best to carry on with her head held high, utilizing healthy coping mechanisms that she had learned in therapy. And then Cindy was violently attacked for the fifth time. Me and I don't know where he came from. And I felt a uh, sharp brick in my neck. And he said, uh, be quiet or quiet or something like that, and we won't hear you. And then I felt something over my mouth. And my right arm being pulled back and I felt a sharp sting in my right arm and I remember thinking oh my god Um, I don't think our baby remember anything else did she say we are going to like yeah and we won't hurt you that's Cindy describing the fifth attack I just wanted to play that because it's so this is basically how she's described all of her attacks. It's terrifying and her fear and her pain seem very real as she's trying to recall the details. And then she just doesn't remember anything. So you have to understand how confusing and frustrating that is for everybody, her included. It's still... She's a woman losing her mind or being violently pursued and attacked. So either way, it's it's, it's a lose-lose. Yeah. 
and that is the end of part two. <sighs> I was going to say, we've been here for a little over an hour and I'm not getting so, I'm not getting answers. <laughs> I did not anticipate that this would be a three-parter. I really believed it was just a two-parter. Mm-hmm. And then after completing part two, I realized there's an entire part three that I haven't even gotten to. Yeah. But I think that's a really great way to end <laughs> the season. Yeah. So I talked, cares. I talked to one of my friends a few days ago and she was like, it's taking all of my self-control to not Google because I can't wait for part two. Don't Google. It's not worth it. Yeah. It's not worth it. But I promise part three will be the last part. And it'll all be done. We'll be done with this story. Guys, there's a part six. No. <laughs> no. No, I believe in you. You got this. Thank you. <laughs> well, I just can see how much you care oh my and how much time this has taken. And I just don't want you to go crazy. Yeah, so yeah. I'm just telling you as a friend, proud Thank of you. you. Thank You've you. You've got this. Thank you. <laughs> I love you. you. I need you here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stay strong. All right. Well, love you. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Ana Katarina. See you next week.